So this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to start out with five stories, five stories, short, short stories, and I want you to tell me how these link together, like what connects them. So let's begin with a girl named Allison, a girl named Allison. She just took a picture of this perfect set of pancakes that she put each peach on in perfect place. So that symmetrically was beautiful and then and put whipped cream on it. And then she took that picture and she put it on Facebook and Instagram. But now she's sad because nobody liked her photo. Uh, number two, uh, we have Billy who really wishes he was a little bit taller and wishes he was a baller. But unfortunately, he's a little bit shorter and just a tad bit slower than the rest of the guys. So he just got looked over being picked up for a pickup game of basketball yet again. That's Billy. Uh, Or what about Cindy? Uh, Cindy just had her boyfriend, who is a Christian, tell her that he believes that God has told him that he is not supposed to be with her, and so they should just cut things off now. Or fourth, you've got Dylan. Dylan kind of inherited his dad's temper, and so now Dylan uh, has been told by his dad, who is in a rage, uh, that he cannot wait for him to be out of the house, that the whole home would be a happier place without him. And then, of course, there's Eva. Eva just got called up into her boss's office. And uh, when she went in and she sat down, she wasn't ready for what she heard. Her boss looked her in the eyes and said, I want you to know that um, actually we're going to have to let you go. It's nothing personal. It's just cutbacks, you know. So what is it? What is it that these five people, the experience that they all share? Rejection. Rejection. And I'm sure as I was sharing each one of those, you probably in your own lives have experiences where you could relate to the kind of pain that they experienced in those moments. And if I was to give you time, I bet everyone in this room has some stories that you would like to add to that list of experiences. You know, rejection is a common experience to humanity. All of us have experienced rejection uh, both in shallow and in deeper ways. In fact, recently there was a TED Talk where a psychologist was talking about this experience of rejection. And uh, this psychologist, Guy Winch, said, rejections are actually the most common emotional wound that we sustain in daily life. And I'm guessing that you probably knew that before he said it. Well, catch this. You might not have known this. Uh, Recently, doctors actually hooked up an MRI to the human brain. And they had a group of people where they asked them, while hooked up to this MRI, to think about some experience of rejection that they've had in the past. And you know what they found happened in the human brain when they did that? The same areas that light up when you have physical pain lit up whenever they started thinking about this rejection experience. So that when we talk about rejection, it actually does interact with your brain in the same way that physical pain does. So rejection literally hurts. That's what we know about rejection. And catch this, I believe many, what you'll find is that many psychologists say that the pain of rejection actually evolved to protect us from being ostracized from a tribe. You know, back in the day, that would have been a death sentence. But what I believe here this morning is the gospel actually gives us a better answer, a spiritual one, to our problem with rejection this morning. Now, we are right back in our our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we've been talking about the amazing, true story of Jesus. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that it looks like 
Jesus just kind of always wins up to this point, right? I mean, when he's confronted with sickness, he heals it. Whenever he is confronted with a legion of demons, he expels them. Whenever a storm comes his way, like I'm talking a hurricane, he says, sit, and it heals. And so maybe last week when you heard Jesus raise a child from the dead, you were thinking to yourself, is there anything that this Jesus can't do? Is everything just easy for him? And maybe just a little bit in the back of your mind, you were thinking to yourself, you know, this Jesus, he's great and all, but I'm not sure that he really could relate to a guy or a girl like me who has experienced significant rejection and failure. Well, let me tell you this morning that in Mark 6, Mark is very quick to let us know that the Jesus that we have is a Jesus who experienced significant rejection. In fact, this morning, what we'll see is, is that in Mark 6, Mark quickly emphasizes the adamant rejection of Jesus in the most intimate of places, his hometown and his very own family. And our big idea this morning is really for you and I who have experienced rejection, great news. And here's the reason. It's because we're going to see that Jesus experienced rejection for every, by everyone. Jesus experienced rejection by everyone so that we might be accepted by God. Isn't that good news? We're going to talk about how that unfolds here in the text. But that is the big idea of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now we see this first when we are confronted with Jesus' hometown rejecting him in verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6, Jesus' own hometown rejects him. Now, you'd expect Jesus' hometown of Nazareth really to be pretty excited about Jesus. Because if you read about Nazareth in the Bible, this is what they think about Nazareth. Here's what they're famous for. They're famous for the fact that nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? I mean, that's what they ask when they hear about Jesus of Nazareth. They're like, can anything good come out of that place? That's what they're named for. Jesus could change that. He's performed these miracles. He's in a mighty works, amazing acts. People are following him just to see what he's doing. And so you might be thinking to yourself, I think this might be a great time for Nazareth to actually start throwing parades for somebody. Now they wouldn't know what to do with it because they never celebrated anything before. But here they go, Jesus, they should celebrate him. And, and maybe that's what's happening because as we read, you're going to see that they're actually letting him teach in the synagogue. That was a big deal. That was a respect issue. They respected Jesus and let him do that. But from there, what we find is Everything turns into something that is amazing bad. Amazing bad. That's what we find here. Now, you'll notice here uh, that there's a lot of bad amazing. Now, here's what I mean by that. Sometimes amazing is good. We know that. Uh, So, for instance, uh, whenever you see a sunset in Phoenix on a cloudy day, there is something glorious and majestic. It is amazing. Uh, When you see the birth of your child, uh, there is something amazing in such a good way about that. Uh, On the other hand, sometimes things are bad amazing. So for instance, whenever Arizona blows an eight-point lead in the final two minutes of the Sweet 16 to Xavier, that is bad amazing. That's not good. And so sometimes we see both of these in the Bible. And in fact, in our text this morning, what we see is two words for bad amazing. We'll find in verse 2 that the people have a response to Jesus that is bad amazing, And then in verse 6, Jesus is going to have a response to them that is bad, amazing. Uh, First, look at Nazareth as they reject Jesus as a bad, amazing thing in verses 1 to 3. There, notice what the Word of God says again. Look with me in Mark 6, 1 to 3. Here's what it says. It says, He, being Jesus, 
went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, you have to ask, why was Jesus' hometown so offended at him? Well, I think that they tell us a few reasons with their questions. So for one, you'll notice that they're asking, where did Jesus get these things? Uh, which I believe is a, a modern equivalent of, this dude didn't even go to seminary, right? Like, he's not trained. Like, how does he get to teach like this with this kind of authority? You know, when Paul is listing his resume of great achievements, you'll notice that he is very quick to mention that he was trained by Gamaliel, an expert teacher of the law. Why? Well, because that said, okay, Paul's legit, he's been trained. They say Jesus isn't legit like Paul. And two, they, they question, by what power does Jesus do these miracles? I mean... We're asking what power it could be because it might not be the good kind of power, which means the bad kind, right? And third, he's, he's not pedigree. I mean, that's really what they're saying. You'll notice that they say he's a carpenter, right? He's a carpenter, uh, like his dad, Joseph, who it looks like isn't alive at this point. Because you'll notice he's, they say he's the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. So she's probably gone. In fact, it looks like not only are they saying that he's just a carpenter from a lowly family, but it seems like he's also dissing on the family a little bit, the whole family, because they're right there in their presence, and they're like, we know your brothers and your sisters, they're right here, and there's nothing abnormal about them. And so if you came for them and you came from us, there can't be anything special about you. See, their their family, they're saying, is way too ordinary to explain the extraordinary nature of what Jesus is doing and who he is. So they, they reject Jesus. They are amazed by him in a bad way. But there's a second amazement we see here that's bad, and that's that Jesus is bad amazed by their unbelief in verses 4 to 6. Now look there at how Jesus responds back. Verse 4. There it says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. Now don't miss this foreboding scene. When John 1.11 says that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not, he meant that Jesus was rejected not just by some Israelites that kind of knew about Jesus but did not receive him. Uh, What John meant and what the Bible writers mean is, is that he was actually rejected at the very most intimate place of his existence, his very own family and his very own hometown. Jesus experienced deep rejection. Jesus couldn't do works in Nazareth, his hometown, because of the profundity of their unbelief. They did not believe in Jesus. And their unbelief in the face of the living Christ, hearing his voice coming out of the very vocal cords of the God-man, 
seeing his miracles, stopping a storm and raising the dead, amazed Jesus in a very bad way. See, not much amazes Jesus in the Bible, which makes sense, right? He's a God-man. I think it's kind of hard to surprise an omnipotent, omniscient being, right? And yet here in the Bible, we find that he's at least surprised on a couple of occasions. One is in Luke 7, where we see that Jesus is confronted by uh, a centurion who puts his faith in him to heal his servant. And what Jesus says is, in this Gentile, I have seen greater faith than what I have found in all of Israel. And it says that Jesus marveled at it. And the other time that Jesus is surprised is right here. In Mark chapter 6, where he is looking at the very core of his experiences in life. The people that have known him from birth up. And they have rejected him as their sovereign king. And it amazes him. What more would they need to see to actually believe? What other miracle, what other power, what other sign would they need to see with their very own eyes to actually believe in a saving way that Jesus is the Christ? I mean, Jesus is the God-man. And He is amazed in a good way by the abundance of faith of the man in Luke 7, but in a bad way of these folks here in Mark 6. And don't miss this. Believing in this context is receiving Christ. That's how we receive Christ. We put our faith in Him and that unites us to us. Believing is receiving, but unbelief, don't miss this, unbelief, not believing in Jesus is actually rejection of Him. That's what this text tells us. I wish I could linger here, but let me point out a couple of important realities that we see. First, we have a Savior who knows rejection. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel rejected because your spouse left you. Your kids uh, don't want anything to do with you. Uh, you were fired, or you don't like uh, that you uh, you don't like that you don't have friends, or you don't have the friends that you want, and you feel rejected. Or maybe you feel like eHarmony just hasn't worked out for you. And on every side, you feel like you have been rejected. And we have a Savior this morning who left the infinite. Consider this. Consider this in your loneliness. You feel like you're you you receive rejection. Because you're a victim of this world. But consider Jesus who intentionally became rejected for you. Just think about it. We serve a Savior who left the infinite, joyful communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit who from eternity's past have joyfully had a perfect kind of party forever. They've loved each other. They've not been needy of anything outside of themselves. Jesus was lacking in nothing relationally when he decided of his own desire because the Father told him to, to take on flesh and enter into and experience the rejection by, catch this, all of humanity, including his own family for you and me. Not only that, Jesus intercedes for lonely, rejected Christians before the Father. and has given us his Spirit to comfort us in that Despair, that's the Jesus that we serve. And so when we cry out to the Father about the pain of rejection, He assures that He hears you as the Father hears the tears of His own Son, Jesus, crying out. And the Spirit seeks to comfort us. What a joy to know that we have a God like that. This morning, if you are feeling rejected, maybe you didn't know that the answer to that rejection isn't first out here, but first with God through His Son, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very Trinity itself has invited you into that joyful communion by the work of Christ. Not that we become God, but we actually become the children of God in Christ. But there's a second thing really that we see here uh, quickly that we need to look at. And that's that humanity rejecting Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that should shock us more than others rejecting us. We should be most shocked when we read this text about the fact that Jesus was rejected by His own. I mean, is there part of you that when you read this text, maybe you're like me and there's an inkling of a voice in the back, maybe louder or quieter, depending on who you are, where you think, man, I am so glad that I'm better than Nazareth. I would never have rejected Jesus like they did. Don't miss this. Here we see that I believe Nazareth is a picture of all of us that minus God's help, we would be left to ourselves and we too would reject the living Lord Jesus face to face. See, minus God's help, you would accept, you would not accept the incarnate Christ. Think about it. Jesus' hometown and family witnessed Jesus preach and perform miracles in the flesh and their unbelief shocked even Jesus. Do you think Jesus felt like they had enough of Jesus to believe? I think so. Left to themselves. And I think subtly some of us think that we're better than that. You know, if we just had direct access to Jesus, that we'd believe better or we'd believe at all. But catch this. I believe that we underestimate how broken we are. I believe our lack of faith is more bad amazing than Nazareth. Now, why would I say that? How could I say that? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty bold statement. Our lack of belief, our unbelief, is more bad amazing than Nazareth. Why would I say that? Well, because I believe that we have something better than they have. We have the resurrected Jesus Christ. We have seen Jesus raised from the dead. We have heard from a a, a host of eyewitness testimony, and yet we have not believed, or we have not believed as we ought. See, the resurrection of Jesus, I believe, changes everything. And so this morning, if you're here and, and, and you're not a Christian, and you are honest, then you need to know that your greatest problem with unbelief isn't a lack of evidence, but the need for regeneration. See, your, your need is not for new evidence, but a new heart. Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus in John 3. He knew his Bible well also. He was a Pharisee. And he said to this man, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't care how much seminary you have. If you don't have God do a mighty work in your heart and change you, you will not believe in Jesus. You don't need to merely see Jesus with your eyes, friends. You need to see Him with your heart. And that is something, that is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. So ask this morning that the Spirit would help you to trust Jesus and make you new and believe Him in a way that changes your identity to the core. And Christian, this morning, know this. Don't underestimate or overestimate yourself. Don't overestimate yourself thinking that you would trust in Jesus more if you saw Him face to face, if not for the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, as we look around at those around us, we need to know the only reason that any of us believe is because of the Holy Spirit, not because we are better, smarter, cleverer. We needed God Himself to do a mighty work in our lives. And that that ought to humble us and amaze us and cause us to be grateful for the brothers and sisters around us. It should humble us and not make us proud. But there's a second point that we see in this text really quickly. That's this, that Jesus prepares the disciples for rejection on his behalf. 
Jesus actually prepares the disciples to be rejected on his behalf. We see this in verses 7 to 13. So guess what? In these verses, Jesus sends the disciples out with all authority. And he prepares them, you'll notice, both for success and rejection. So look what it says, beginning in verse 7. Here's what he says. It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now it seems that Jesus sends these twelve out two by two because it took at least two witnesses to confirm a testimony in a court. Now they wanted to verify the, the truthfulness of the testimony that they brought. And they took nothing with them except their shoes, a staff, and the clothes on their backs. Why? Well, I think it's a picture of their total dependence on God to provide for their needs. Now, also, it meant that they had to play by Jesus' rules. Uh, they had to be completely dependent on somebody who would receive them with hospitality. They couldn't make it on their own. And so here what we find in verses 10 to 11 is that when they would come to a village, here's a picture of the way that they did their mission. When they would enter in, they would find a home base, a place that they would stick around, and from there they would go out and preach the word and perform miracles. And then they would move on and find another home base in another village. So the disciples went out preaching. Preaching what? Repentance. uh, Casting out demons and anointing the sick with oil as they healed them. And I believe that they had power to do these things because it authenticated the message. It said, we are coming in the name of Jesus, with the authority of Jesus, so that you know that these are Jesus' words, not ours. But in verse 11, you'll notice something interesting in the midst of this call. Did you notice that in the middle of it, he gives them rejection directions? Did you catch that? Right in the middle. He says, if any place will not receive you. Which I guess means that Jesus is anticipating that some places would not receive them. And he goes on to say, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now that's pretty mean, right? Like, don't you hate it when people come into your house and they shake the dust off? Like, it's horrible. Well, it would have been more horrible for them, right? So R.T. France in his commentary kind of explains what this would have meant. If that feels a little bit far from you in your experiences. He says this, Rabbis shook the dust off their feet when leaving Gentile territory to avoid carrying its defilement with them. So this could intend to cause repentance for some who rejected the disciples. Maybe that's the case. But normally, usually, this had a negative meaning of witnessing against someone. And here it would have been against this unrepentant village that was awaiting God's condemnation. And that's a fearful sign. In other words, to reject the gospel that these disciples brought and preached meant rejecting Jesus Himself. 
That's the seriousness. To reject the Word is to reject the one who speaks the Word, is to reject Jesus. Now, I have a number of friends, um, it's really cool, uh, from India who have told me consistently uh, at different times and places that they actually believe that they can trace their faith lineage all the way back to the disciple Thomas. You know Doubting Thomas? They're like, yeah, we can, we can trace it all the way back to him. Now, I, I don't know how you do that. I think that's amazing that they, they think they can do that, and maybe they can. But what I think is amazing is that Thomas, they believe, told someone about Jesus who told someone about Jesus who eventually told them about Jesus in the year 2000. And they believed, and they were saved. And you know, we might not be able to connect those dots all the way back to Thomas, but all of us here today who have put our faith in Jesus, it is because of the testimonies of these eyewitnesses to Jesus. Our faith rests on the testimony of the apostles. And this testimony concerning God's Son has been codified in God's inerrant word, the Bible. See, we believe that God's word is sufficient to lead every person to find salvation and to live a joyful life that pleases God in every way. Now hear me. I really do believe that the Bible is sufficient to lead somebody who is spiritually dead to spiritual life. Does that blow you away? I believe you can use the Bible even without four laws. Is that amazing? I I just think it's true. Why do I believe that? Well, Because that's what the Word of God says. It is thoroughly able and sufficient to equip everyone for every good work. We know that we can trust that God's Word in our hands, in the Bible, we actually have the, the, the explanation for how you and I can actually please God in every way and lead a joyful life to the glory of His name. Isn't that amazing? Like God gave us that in His Word. And to reject the Bible, hear me, is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus' voice is to reject Him. Now, I, I know this on a personal level because I have three little boys who tend to press back. And they don't ever come up to me and say, Dad, we're not going to ever do what you say, but we just want you to know that we accept you with all our hearts. Does that work in your house? I would love to come and see your house and what that looks like, right? No, what, what God says is, um, I am God, have all authority, I have made you, I have loved you, I have purchased you with my blood, the blood of my son Jesus. And by virtue of that, you know that I'm good. There's none good like me. I know what's better for you than you know what's good for yourself. And so here's the deal. I am your heavenly father. And as such, you are my children and children obey their fathers. For us to reject the voice of Jesus is for us to reject the the word of his father is for us to reject God himself. So let me ask you a question. Do you think here there's any significance in Mark sharing the story of Jesus' rejection by his home before Jesus sends the disciples out with instructions on how to deal with rejection? You think? I think maybe there's some divine wisdom behind the fact that Jesus says, hey, here's the biggest story and the sort of climax of my rejection prior to the cross. And now let me tell you about when you go out, you should expect to find rejection too. Think there's any wisdom behind that? Any meaningful purpose? I think so. See, I I think that it's really clear. We live in a fallen world full of rejection. And no one can escape the broken relationships of this world. It's part of being human. In fact, I've seen people spend their lives treating their families as God, hoping to protect it against outsiders, breaking them up and creating hostility in their homes 
only to find later their homes themselves to implode. Why? Because it's not just the problem with hostilities out there, it's also in here. And, and the reality is, is that we cannot hide from hostility. Uh, we need to fight hostility, and that can only be won by the power of the gospel. See, here what we find is, is that as ambassadors of Christ, we are no better than our master. That's what Jesus wants us to know. And that we should expect to experience rejection in the name of Christ. In fact, if, if following Jesus hasn't brought rejection upon us in some way, we might just not be doing it right, according to the Bible. But maybe the pain of rejection is what's preventing you this morning from sharing Christ with a friend or from a family member, or with a coworker, because you are scared that will ruin your relationships. Let me tell you, if, if your relationship is ruined on account of the gospel, there's no better way to ruin a relationship. They need Jesus. And they need peace not just with you, but peace with God. I love what J.C. Ryle said about this. He said, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. But be encouraged. Be encouraged this morning by Paul. Paul suffered many pains and much rejection for the gospel. And I love what he says in Colossians 1.24. He says, my experience of rejection at the hands of men is a picture of my acceptance by God in union with Christ. You remember this verse, I'm sure, in Colossians 1.24. Speaking of rejection and pain, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, being the church. And in my flesh, I am filling up, catch this, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is, the church. You see it? Like He, he senses a unity with Christ in this suffering that He is not alone as He suffers for others for the glory of the name of Christ. So catch this, Easter's coming up. And at the end of the service, uh, you'll notice that we've already given you those cards. And what we want you to do with those cards is actually, this morning, think about somebody that you know. And please, all eyes here. All of you know somebody who needs Christ. And I want to encourage you to invite that person to come with you to church on Easter. I'm happy if you ask them to come tomorrow, uh, next Sunday. But Easter is an easy, an easy kind of way to invite friends to church. Give that card to them and invite them to come. And you get bonus points if you invite them to lunch later. Right? Like an opportunity to enter into a relationship with them and and talk to them more about the gospel. Because as much as they need to hear me speak the gospel, they need to hear you. They need to hear it from you, someone they love and trust. So let's love them as much as Christ loved us and as much as we love our own lives and share Christ with them. Let's fear the eternal destiny of our friends and family who do not know Christ more than we fear the temporal rejection of men. But there's a third thing that we see here. And that's that Jesus was mistaken for other rejected prophets of the past. Jesus was actually mistaken for other rejects. Uh, We see this in verses 14 to 20 where we actually have this story of John the Baptist. So maybe you're wondering, what happened to John the Baptist? Like the gospel started with him and we haven't talked about him again. Well, here it kind of picks up with what happened to John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6. Look with me at verse 14 and what it says. There it says, King uh, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, 
John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, his hour is now late. Uh, when he heard him, sorry, just losing the page. Ah, there it is. Uh, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, did you catch what people were saying about Jesus? Really important. Uh, he's either Elijah, another guy who raised someone from the dead, uh, or uh, he's John the Baptist who he's saying maybe was raised to dead himself. Now, he's either one of these, but Jesus' popularity here has reached the very courts of King Herod with these reports. Now, who's King Herod? Well, there are a lot of Herods in the Bible, uh, but this is King Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. Uh, He's a guy who, we are told here, divorced his wife, his first wife, to take his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Now, clearly, John, uh, John the Baptist did not struggle with the fear of rejection. Uh, we know that because he ate locusts, lived in the desert, and, rose, uh, and, and wore like animal skins. But also, because he here comes to the face, he confronts, it looks like, King Herod to the face, calling him out for his sin, pointing him to what Leviticus 18.6 and 20.21 says about taking a brother's wife. This was unacceptable if the brother died but it is all the more unacceptable because his brother was still alive. And verses 21 to 29 are hyperlinked to how that story unfolded with the death of John the Baptist. So here, Herod explains how he beheaded John, and it says, here's what's happened. Herodias' daughter, she dances for King Herod's party, and so he's happy. And he offers her anything that she wants. I mean, just think, this must have been some dance. He says, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. I don't know anybody here that dances that good. But he said, anything you want up to half my kingdom. And so Herodias tells her, tells her daughter to ask for John's head on a platter. Are you kidding me? You could have half the kingdom, but you'd rather have John's head? Well, verse 26 says this, when they asked for that. It says, and the king, Herod, was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So he had John beheaded, and his head is handed to Herodias on a platter. And then we're told that John's disciples take him and put him in the tomb. What, what an inglorious end that sounds to the life of the great John the Baptist, right? I mean, as, as you're reading this story, you're probably thinking to yourself, I mean, he looks like a real loser. But catch this. I think there are three responses that we, we need to look at as we wrap this up this morning. The three responses, the one of Herodias, the one of Herod, and the one of John the Baptist. Uh, first, I mean, just take note of Herodias who held a grudge. Maybe it looks like she won in this scenario. But notice that it was that grudge that she had that led her to take the life of John the Baptist. Catch this, don't miss this. This morning, I don't know if if you're someone who struggles with bitterness and anger and you think it's not that big of a thing and it's a lesser sin, but just take note, Herodias, her, her grudge turned to bitterness, turned to murder. 
Bitterness is a significant sin. We need to kill bitterness in our hearts. In fact, we are told here that the bitterness inside her grew so great that when she was offered the option of half the kingdom or the head of John the Baptist, who she was angry with, she said she would take the head of John the Baptist any day. And what kind of anger and hostility do you have to have in your heart to make that kind of trade? And why does she do it? Well, because of what God's Word said about Herodias. Right? I mean, she wasn't really angry so much about John the Baptist. She was angry that John the Baptist was telling her what God's Word said about her life. And she hated it. But here, what we find is, is that she loved her sin and sought to silence God by silencing John. And rejecting God's Word, hear me, is rejecting the triune God. I believe Herodias was in search of more than what she knew. See, I, I don't think that Herodias really even understood her, whole, her own heart as she made that change and that exchange. See, uh, uh, I believe that she could have used a good conversation with a theologian of the past, Augustine. I don't know if you've heard of Augustine of, of Hippo, uh, but he was one of the great theologians of the past. And he actually wrote his own little diary about his life before he was a Christian. And then uh, he sent it out so that everybody could read it, right? And Christians have been reading it for generations. How many of you would like to share all your deep, dark secrets and the ugliest parts of your lives for everybody to read? Anybody? Yeah, me neither. Uh, At least posthumous, right? Like after you're dead. Like I don't want to be around for like people judging me for that stuff. But that's what he did. And so he published this diary. It's called The Confessions. And there are all kinds of stories that talk about his grappling with sin. This was a man that before he became uh, became a man of God, was a ridiculous sinner. And he, he speaks of himself that way. He was looking for pleasure in uh, sexual sins. Uh, he was looking at it through, through pride and through arrogance, through making a great name for himself. He was seeking to sin in every way possible to satisfy his soul. And he, he tells of this story in that work about how when he was younger, he had an experience that really opened his eyes. So he... He loved to go out with his buddies and to steal pears from this man's orchard. Pears that that were really this man's livelihood. And he and his buddies, he would go take them and they would walk along the road and they would eat them as they ran off. And then a lot of times he started noticing that he would eat the pears and then he would throw them to the pigs. And the pigs would eat them. And he's like, man, I'm just stealing these pears. And, And one day he was thinking about it. He said, you know, it's interesting. I'm stealing these pears and I'm eating them. And I don't even really know that I like pears that much, right? I'm not stealing them because they're sweet or because they're beautiful. I'm not even stealing them because I love the taste of a pear. You know what I'm really stealing these pears for? It's not because I love pears, but because I love sin. That's the reason I keep taking these pears. I love to steal. I love the feeling of sin inside. And what he realized was that he was deeply broken. He was deeply broken in a way that The best thing he knew was sin. And let me tell you, the Bible is very clear that sin always leads to death. It always seeks to take your life. It promises great things and it takes your life from you. And this picture of Herodias' sin that led to the death of John was just foreshadowing of her death and a greater death that was to come. See, I believe that she needed to hear that there was something better from her. And maybe that's you today. You needing to hear this. You need to hear that sexual desire, the desire for approval, desire for control or something else that is controlling you this morning, 
Uh, You need to repent of those things and believe the gospel because you love your sin and you would not only kill John if you were honest, but you would even kill Jesus himself to have your sin in peace. See, I believe though we were made for more. We were made for more than sin. And we were made for more than death. And Jesus is better than your sin and offers eternal life. Isn't that a better exchange? But not only Herodias, consider Herod. See, Herod, he killed John. And here's what's interesting. Did you notice that even though Herod is the one who actually kills John and sends the order to have him executed, he looks like the victim throughout? Like like the, the Gospel of Mark really goes through great pains to make him look weak. Herod executed John, but the text makes him look so powerless and driven by desire for his wife and the approval of others, right? I mean, why did he kill, kill John? Well, it's because of his wife's bitterness. And, and what else? Well, also because he wanted to see his daughter dance. Like, what does that say? And, and then also to make those people around him like him. He didn't want to have them think poorly of him. And those are all reasons that he killed John. See, with Herod, we clearly see that behind all of this sin is a deeper longing for intimacy and acceptance. And don't you see it so clearly? Uh, Augustine, he later in his work, noticed the same thing about himself. And all of his wild pursuits of sin. I I love what he said about his sexual sins and stealing, etc. This is what he said. The single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to love and be loved. Did you catch that? Why, Why did he steal that pair? Inside there was something that had this greater longing to be loved and to love. That's what he longed for. And that really, at the the core of it, is what I believe drives all of our sins. So coming full circle, what Herodias and Herod wanted most deeply wasn't simply to be accepted by other people. That never satisfied them, and it led to murder. See, they ultimately, I believe, needed acceptance not just with man, but with God. See, John the Baptist was murdered. John the Baptist loved God. And he prepared the way for Jesus. He's the third guy that we're talking about. And he, though he looks like he lost, really won. Because John the Baptist loved God and prepared the way for Jesus. And in that pursuit, it cost him his head. He was rejected by men. But catch this, John the Baptist is part of the greatest story ever told. John may look like the big loser here, but catch this. Jesus was rejected not just by man, but by God for John and for you and me. Roman officials, Jewish leaders, and even one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, would conspire together to put God's Son to death on a cross. And you'll remember that it was from that cross that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Sebektani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Do you know the answer to that question this morning? It's the people in this room. It is for us that Jesus went to the cross and became rejected by God. Jesus faced the rejection of God in the face of God so that me and you might be accepted by God. And John the Baptist knew it. And it was worth every bit of his blood to gain Christ. See, Jesus endured the rejection of God in all of humanity so that we might be accepted by God just like John was. See, I believe the great pains that we feel every day in a variety of rejections are really just hints and echoes of the great pain that we felt back in the Garden of Eden when God cast us out of his presence. 
And what we desire most isn't merely acceptance of a man or a woman or a boss or a community. We do desire those things, but what we long for most is reconciliation with God and with God's people. That's what we're hungry for. And Jesus brought us that through His blood. He took on God's rejection so that we don't have to. Isn't that good news? And when we receive Christ by faith, God accepts us not just as enemy combatants or rebels, but as the children of God. And He creates a new family and a new home where one day we will dwell with Him forever. No longer rejected. Acceptance like we've never experienced before. That's, friends, that's acceptance. And that's what our heart desires. I hope that you have that acceptance this morning. If you don't, don't leave without talking to me about how uh, you can come into the family of God. I'd love to explain that to you. But in this moment, let's pray and ask for God's help. Will you pray with me?